I'd like us all to stand together, and uh, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together, and uh, we'll put it up on the screen. And I want to kind of follow along. Some of you have it memorized from whatever particular church you went to in the past. There's always little variations on it, but we can do this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we are teaching on the Apostles' Creed. We started it last week. The uh, Creed is one of the earliest statements of Christian faith. It goes back uh, even as early as as the end of the first uh, century. Uh, It was a statement of faith that converts would recite out uh, before being baptized. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Uh, Back uh, in early Christianity and throughout all the Bible... Um, people who were baptized were always adults. You know, I know hundreds of years later, churches started saying, well, let's start baptizing babies as well. But it was never intended for babies. It was intended for adults as a statement of faith as they determined in their heart they're going to follow Jesus Christ in their lives. And they would give this statement. They'd get up and say the Apostles' Creed. Uh, So it was something that they said as as a profession of their faith. It was also something that the church started having people say just to start fighting off some of the crazy ideas that were sneaking into Christianity. Bizarre concepts and ideas that were coming from paganism and all sorts of other religions and stuff that started seeping into the church. And by having this concrete statement said, no, 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 this is what we believe. Now, uh, there are actually two major creeds uh, in Christianity. One is the Apostles' Creed, which really is the oldest. Then another one is called the Nicene Creed, which uh, they all have various uh, small variations and stuff. Actually, I, I think the Nicene Creed, which I'll read to you when we get to the end of this series in the next couple of weeks, uh, is actually a little stronger creed, and it's, it's, uh, it's more clear and concise. But there's nothing wrong with the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is shorter. You know, we don't want to stand and recite the Gettysburg Address every Sunday morning, you know, so not that it's that long, but it's, you know, it's just a longer one, and we thought, well, let's stay with the Apostles' Creed uh, there. And again, there's different variations on it. Uh, as, depending on, on what group of people you're with. One of the biggest variations, actually, is just the phrase, uh, I or we. Uh, some of the creeds say, I believe, and they, it's a personal uh, presentation of faith. Uh, others say, we, we adopted the we because we're saying this as a group of believers. Uh, if you are more comfortable saying I, you're certainly welcome to do so. Some people think, well, yeah, I want to say I because that's the way I was raised saying it, and it means more to me when I say it. That's fine. Uh, I assume the we implies I, or it would be they. <laughs> Did you follow that? You're pretty sharp this morning. So, you know, when you say we, that means I, okay, but uh, whatever. So, but it, it is something that we do together. Actually, when all the campuses, when we stand up and the other campuses are standing up, it is really the one thing that we do now all together as a group of believers. 
as we say this creed together. Well, it starts out, uh, we believe in God. We started talking about that last week. Uh, uh, this is the God we read about in Genesis in the beginning. In the beginning, God. I just love the way the Bible starts. <laughs> in the beginning, God was there. We believe in a God that has no beginning and no end. We believe in a God to whom nothing is impossible. And we believe in a God who loved us so much, he came to the earth, acting as the Lamb of God who took the punishment for our sins. Then it goes on to the next part. It says, we, said, we believe in God, and this is the Father Almighty. Now, this is where we get the uh, introduction of the idea of the Trinity. One God, but three persons. You say, well, that's, that's a little hard to understand. Well, actually, there's lots of things that are hard to mentally understand about God and about faith. And if you're trying to come to God with your head, you're not going to get very far. But it's not beyond comprehension. You know, there's lessons even in nature that we can look at that speaks to us of God. Jesus referred to that when speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He says you can't see it, but you can feel it. And you can see the impact it has all around it. Um, but the, the, when it comes to the Trinity, the, the, the lesson in nature I like to use is simply water. Now, water is an amazing thing. I mean, you can have a bucket of water or a pool of water or whatever. You know, where, where's the, if you were to say, well, grab the beginning of it, where would you go? Grab the end of it. You know, there, it's just water. And you can split it up in a bunch of different things and it's still water. Whether it's all together, it's water. If it's split up in a million different places, it's still just water. H2O. Now, if you get it hot enough, it turns into what? Steam. Do you know what steam is made out of? Water. In fact, it's exactly the same element. H2O. And of course, being in lovely Green Bay, Wisconsin, we're all familiar with the other version, which is called ice. Two, I mean, three completely different looks. Three completely different feels. Three completely different experiences made of the exact same substance. That's God. Three persons, but just one God. And the next phrase, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, I like this one. Uh, Now, there's a lot of debate today in our culture about where we came from. And people wrestle with this idea of creation versus the Big Bang or evolution or, or whatever else. And, uh, you know, people ask me sometimes, do, do you really believe that God created the, the, the earth in, in a six-day span, 24-hour span? I, I do. I really do. Now, you say, well, I don't. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. If, if you think God took millions of years uh, to do it, doesn't say a lot for his speed, but, you know, if that, that's okay with me as long as you acknowledge that God did it. I don't have problems with people saying, well, I think it happened this way as long as they acknowledge that God did it this way. I have two problems overall with the evolution. Well, I got many, but two major ones. One is that they're really trying to imply that God had nothing to do with it, that it happened in and of itself. Or that God programmed it and it just kind of off on his own little world. And number two, that we are no different than all the other creatures on the earth. That's a major stumbling block for me. For we did not come from a squirrel, a chicken, and a frog. 
We were made by the hand of God. Mankind is different. Made in the image of God with an intellect and a response system that far exceeds any animal. We are not like the animals. We live in a world that very much wants you to believe you're an animal. And for our young people, that were one of the main reasons we're even doing this is to drill into our young people the concepts of Christianity, the fundamental concepts of Christianity. You'll be involved in a school system that basically wants to explain to you that you can't help being the way you are. That you are an animal. That you can't control your passions. You can't control your sex drive. You can't control the way you behave. You're an animal. This is animal drives. Ah! Just like a dog or something else. No, no, no. We're not dogs, frogs, chickens, or pigs. We are men and women. We can control our passions, our desires. And we can control the way that we act. You are not an animal. Now, I've got lots of problems with the whole evolution concept, you know. It just, in my mind, takes much greater faith to believe that all this happened by itself than to believe that God created it, at least as far as I'm concerned. If I came to you this morning and showed you my black little Kia that I drive around in and began to make the argument that they found that Kia in the middle of a mountain somewhere and that no one had made it, That what had happened was a bunch of iron ore got squished together and lots of heat and pressure and, and, you know, elements. And over millions of years, it formed into metal. You know, it just happened to be perfectly aerodynamically shaped. It's just over millions of years. And then the glass, because there was sand there and it was struck by lightning and it heated and it turned into glass. It just happened to fit just perfectly over the windshield and the windows and everything all around it. You think I'm a complete idiot moron. But I promise you, my little Kia is nothing compared to the complexity of life on this planet. We work hard enough, we can all make a Kia. But life, it just boggles the imagination but one of the ways they get past your intellect is to throw out this idea of millions of years because you go well i guess i guess anything can happen over millions of years and we buy into foolishness we buy into nonsense now you would think that over millions of years There would be all kinds of evidence in the fossil record of this great transformation from one species into another. I mean, if a frog eventually became a chicken, where's the chicken frog? Are you hearing me? Somewhere there should have been a frog with a beak on it. But they have no such record. On occasion, they come up with some animal or something that they find... That they trump, you trump it. Yes, this is, he kind of fits in between. This could be one of the transitional. Come on, you're the one that says millions of years. How do we know that just wasn't some weird animal that's already died off? There should be all kinds of stages in the way. We got fossil records of prehistoric animals and all, all kinds of evidence. But there is no evidence in the fossil record. And they'll admit that very begrudgingly. They'll say, well, we just haven't, haven't found it yet. I suppose they will over millions of years. 
stumble across it somewhere. And to listen to these documentaries, you think, really? You really think this? Yes, the bird evolved into a yellow, bright yellow feathers with big black spots on it so that it would ward off uh, any predators. The bird figured this out. Now this is clearly no relative of the bird who keeps trying to fly into our kitchen every sun, every morning. <laughs> the same bird. And it's not like he flies into it once. He does it over and over and over and over and over again. And he sits right on the... He'll bump up and then, and then he'll sit on the sill right, and he'll just look at it. And then he'll try to fly through it. Just bounce it. You can just hear this peak beak. Somehow there's this magical force field that keeps him out. It's called a window. I presume if he had millions of years, he would figure out how to open the window and come inside. The bird figured out if it was the right colored feathers, it would succeed. The bird! This has got to be one smart bird. I'm a grown man and I got a brain a lot bigger than a bird. And I've yet to convince my head to grow more hair. (laughs) But this bird figured out, you know, if I was just yellow. If I, now, of course, this took millions of years. So somehow he had to leave a note for the next bird before he died. <laughs> saying, think yellow. <clears throat> and for millions of years, that all happened. Goodness gracious, the ants. I was watching a documentary on ants. Talk about incredibly complex creatures. Listening to, listening to the narrator talk about, well, the... Oh, the over years, millions of years of evolution, some ants figured out that they should be the worker ants, and other ones should be the army ants, and the other ones should be the baby taking care of ants, and the other ones should be all by themselves. An amazing, an amazing, not just the ants, but this is all throughout creation. It all just happened by itself. And of course, they mock the idea of God saying, well, I can't, well, that's nonsense. I can't get my head around it. I can't get my head around it. Really? You know, I was uh, uh, watching a movie the other day, Star Trek. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Trekkie. Any Trekkies out there? You grew up on Star Trek. You know, it's a, it's, it's a cool sci-fi deal. The neat thing about Star Trek is it really is filled with concepts and ideas uh, that the scientific community has always deemed Possible. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's not just totally wacko craziness. You know, it's got all these wacko crazy fun things that are in it. But they really have concepts. And I saw a documentary not long ago about, it was called How Star Trek Changed the World. And it was fascinating. Because those of you who remember when Star Trek first came out in the 60s, they presented concepts and ideas that scientists believe were theoretically possible. They didn't exist yet. But that's how the Gene Roddenberry guys would take these concepts and put them into this, this thing. That's why it's such a long-lasting series. 
uh, because it has this element of, of possibility to it. But I remember, remember the first time you were watching Star Trek and, and uh, Kirk walked up to the elevator and it just went, Yeet! and he walked in and it shut by itself. Yeet! We all went, whoa. Doors that think for themselves. Wouldn't that be amazing if that were possible? And of course, you all walked through such doors this morning into church. And what they did is they went to the guys who invented and discovered this technology and said they got the idea as young boys and men watching Star Trek. You remember how McCoy would take these little things and go, Dr. McCoy over the body and he could look inside the body and see what... They went to the people who invented and created MRI scans and those sorts of things that now imaging scans where they can look into the body. They got the idea as they're interviewing. said, so, well, we got the idea from watching Star Trek. On and on. The cell phones that you all have with you this morning, and they better be off. <laughs> they got the idea from Star Trek. It's absolutely fascinating because... You know, these guys that walk around and go, bleep, bleep, beam me up, Scotty. Okay? A, a thing without wires. Now, how many of you, most of your life, you grew up, everything had wires to it? You know, some of you older, but you know what I'm talking about? The idea that you could have a phone in your car was beyond comprehension. You think, man, that's a, how long of a cord would you need? <laughs> but these guys came out, there's a way to talk magically? And now today virtually everybody in America has a self, all these ideas, because they conceived of these things. Now I'm watching this movie, Wrath of Khan, which I think is the best one of the bunch. Ricardo Montalban. But uh, part of the idea, the, the, the theory of this whole movie is that they have created this machine. It's just a big kind of long thing, looks like a gigantic suppository or something but anyways this this machine that they call the genesis project and the machine has the ability to create life i want you to watch this little scene project genesis a proposal to the federation carol marcus yes what exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level into life-generating matter of equal mass. Stage one of our experiments was conducted in the laboratory. Stage two of the series will be attempted in a lifeless underground. Stage three will involve the process on a planetary scale. It is our intention to introduce the Genesis device into a pre-selected area of a lifeless space body, a moon or other dead form. The device is delivered, instantaneously causing what we call the Genesis effect. Matter is reorganized with life-generating results. Instead of a dead moon, a living, breathing planet capable of sustaining whatever life forms we see fit to deposit on it. Fascinating. 
The reformed moon simulated here represents the merest fraction of the Genesis potential, should the Federation wish to fund these experiments to their logical conclusion. When we consider the cosmic problems of population and food supply, the usefulness of this process becomes clear. This concludes our proposal. Thank you for your attention. It literally is Genesis. Our creation. Have they proceeded with their experiments? Well, the tape was made about a year ago, so I can only assume they've reached stage two by now. Dear Lord, do you think we're intelligent enough to... Suppose... What if this thing we use where life already exists? It would destroy such life in favor of its new matrix. Its new matrix? Do you have any idea what you're saying? I was not attempting to evaluate its moral implications, Doctor. As a matter of cosmic history, it has always been easier to destroy than to create. Not anymore. Now we can do both at the same time. According to myth, the Earth was created in six days. Now watch out. Here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. Really, Dr. McCoy? Now check this out. Trust me when I say this to you. These people do not have a problem getting their heads around the idea of creation. For these people will do a movie like this. Scientists will have input into such concepts. They can come up with the idea and more readily assume the idea that a machine could create such things and have no problem getting their head around that at all. In fact, there's millions of people who've watched this who would think, watching, they go, yeah, that, that could happen. I don't know problem with that. But these very same people will tell you God could not have done it in six days. A giant suppository could do it in six minutes. <laughs> it's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. Trust me. And you young people, when you're in your classes and they're talking to you and stuff like that, don't say to them what I'm saying to you. Because <laughs> you will get kicked out of school. Or at least out of the class. Be respectful. Let them blather on about their concepts and their ideas. But just know in your heart, when they try and speak of, as he said, myth. Yeah, myth. We've heard of myth. But we've got a machine much better than, than God. It's not an intellectual problem. These people have a heart problem. And the reason is this. If they have to acknowledge that God actually created this incredible complex matrix that we're in, then they have to answer to that God. And that's something they're not willing to do. So in the foolishness of their minds, they try to create an illusion, a fantasy, that this all happened magically over millions of years. We believe in God who created the heavens and the earth. The next phrase, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Here we have Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God. When mankind fell into sin, God did not leave them hopeless. He let them know that a Messiah would be coming. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. We read about this Jesus in the Gospel of John. In the very beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Three persons 
in the Trinity. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus didn't suddenly start existing when born upon the earth. He was there in the beginning. Through him all things were made. He was part of this deal. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. This is the Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one to whom we believe. And then this phrase, who for us and for our salvation. Now this phrase actually is not originally in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Nicene Creed. And I pulled it out of there and stuck it in our version just because it is such a powerfully clear statement. There's a reason Jesus came to the earth. And it was for us and for our salvation. That's why he came. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Well, how can a virgin conceive? Again, people will struggle greatly in their heads with this concept. But you know what? For those whose hearts have been touched with God, you don't really have problems with these ideas. Because we can easily agree with the angel who came to Mary and made this very simple proclamation to her. There is nothing impossible with God. Now, why is it important that Jesus be born of a virgin? Because the blood of the father is what's passed on to the child. For Jesus to have had an earthly father, he would have had to been part of the blood of Adam, which was conceived or, or, and, and would have had, therefore been conceived in sin. Jesus, without a father, born of the Virgin Mary, escaped having the poisonous blood of sin in his veins. He came to this earth as God in human form. You say, how is that possible? I don't know. But it is what happened. And that's what made him so incredibly different. That's why when he spoke, the winds would stop, the seas would calm. Where he could look at any sickness and disease and correct it and healing would come. Where he could call into the tomb of Lazarus who's been dead for 10 days and say, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus comes hopping out. God in the flesh. The next phrase that says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now why is that important? Because really in the story of, of uh, the crucifixion, the death and stuff, Pilate is very much a, a minor player in the whole deal. The reason for that is strictly... Uh, they put that in there to give a point of historical reference. Because already back then, people were making statements like, well, oh, how do we know Jesus even really lived? You know, people say, well, you don't even know if Jesus really existed. Might just be a myth. No, 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 no. Historical records point to the fact that Jesus Christ was there. If you can't believe Jesus Christ lived on this earth, you can't believe anything. Pilate is a historic person. With details whose life has been recorded, not only in the Gospels, but also in secular history. Josephus records several incidents in the life of Pilate, which are strikingly in accordance with his character as set forth in the Gospels. Tacitus, a Roman historian who wrote his annals soon after the uh, uh, crucifixion of Jesus, relates that while Pilate was governor of Judea, Jesus Christ was put to death. The testimonies of the Gospels and the statement of the creed are thus confirmed by Roman and Jewish historians. But indeed, the event itself is not really the subject of controversy. The reason they don't want to acknowledge Jesus was really there, because then they have to answer. If they, see, that's why they've got to go out of their way. 
Well, he, he didn't really exist. He didn't really exist. They've got to say that. They've got to come up with anything. But what they're fighting, people, is not this. It is this. And that's what gets them in trouble. So we believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. You notice there's no statement in the Apostles' Creed about the teachings of Jesus, of his three-year ministry. Oddly enough, it's the one thing people, they will grab onto that. Well, Jesus was a great teacher. Yeah, it's a fabulous teacher. Yeah, great, great concepts, great philosophical, you know, great, wonderful prophet. And I listen to people like that and I go, well, that's funny because we don't really think in those terms. Was he a great teacher? Without doubt. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, it truly boggles the imagination. Here's a man who had a ministry for three years. And if his teachings were strictly based on changing the world, just based on his teachings alone, what a three-year run that was. I mean, it's not like Confucius or Mohammed or even Abraham or Moses who had these entire long lives of history and experience and teachings and writings and do you know, realize Jesus wrote nothing down. In your Bible, he didn't write a word of it. These aren't the words written by Jesus. This was some great philosopher who sat down and wrote down his thoughts. For three years he went about teaching. And they captured those teachings by others who heard him and wrote them down in the Gospels. We have the record of these things. But even in the book of John, John says, man... This is just a fraction of what he said. He said, if, there, if, we, if we wrote down everything, the books couldn't, in the world couldn't hold it all. In just three years. Why is this not a big thing for the Apostles' Creed? Why don't we make a bigger deal of Jesus being this great teacher? Because what was really significant about Jesus, as, as amazing as his teachings were and are, the words of God. And we all acknowledge that. The point of Jesus coming to the earth wasn't to teach us things. The fundamental purpose that he came was to be crucified and to die for the sins of the world. He was, as John the Baptist cried out, the Lamb of God. The ultimate sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Why is this so important? Because mankind has a big sin problem. And we have to take sin very seriously. I'm often stunned by how lightly people take the concept of sin in their lives. How often I've met with people who are struggling in their lives and they see no connection between sin and the fact that God is not answering their prayers and blessing them. It's really, it's really fascinating. I was talking about this Wednesday night on our Wednesday night Bible study in greater detail. If you missed it, get the CD. But it is amazing how often people just they get no connection. Listen to me. If you're trying to experience God in your life, but you are willfully and intentionally sinning against God, it will separate you from God in your life. And if you've never been born again, if you've never truly experienced Jesus Christ in your life, this sin will be what keeps you from God in eternity and keep you out of heaven. It's no small deal. It's a big stinking honking deal. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't buy your way out. You can't be good at all. I'm not such a bad guy. I'm kind of a good guy. No, 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 no. 
If you're going to buy your way out, Jesus would have said, hey, buy your way out, man. I don't want to die on a cross. If you could have been good enough, he said, hey, man, just be good enough. He wouldn't have had to die on the cross. The reason he died on that cross is because without that death, without that sacrifice, without taking that punishment, we would be forever doomed. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time, get ready to serve communion, musicians to come back. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. God said sin must be punished. If there is a law that you break, let's say you broke the speeding law on the way to church this morning. Can't imagine any of you doing that. But uh, let's just say theoretically over millions of years, you came here too fast and they caught you. And if they have mandatory sentencing, then you get sentenced, you get penalized. Imagine that they have an outrageous penalty because they take it so seriously. Say $100,000 fine if you get caught speeding. Now I dare say if such a thing existed, most of you got here about three miles per hour. We'd all take that really seriously because the penalty would be so strong. See, the reason people drive so fast is the penalty is kind of inconvenient, but it's not really enough to keep us from doing it. You know what I'm saying? But if there was a massive penalty, $100,000, boy, you take it really seriously. And how many of you know if you did get caught speeding and there was a mandatory fine that had to be paid of $100,000, you'd be in a world of hurt. Anybody here this morning have a hard time paying a $100,000 fine? That would definitely be me. And it's that or you're thrown into jail. You'd be in a bad, bad place. Now, if the judge just goes... All right, I know you didn't mean it, you know, and it's just no big deal and stuff. Well, if it's a mandatory law, he can't do that. Judges have discretion, hence why they're called judges. But these mandatory laws takes the discretion out of the judge's hands. They have no say. And as much as the judge may not want to hit you with a $100,000 fine, you'd be hit with the fine. You'd be in a world of hurt. If he dismissed that, he'd be in trouble. He would not be taken seriously. When God said there would be a severe eternal punishment for sin, he wasn't kidding. And when people come before him, he can't just go, all right. It would totally violate who he is. But imagine as you're standing in that court with a fine of $100,000 that you cannot pay. And you're about to be taken from your wife and family and thrown into prison for who knows how long if suddenly some guy stood up and said, hey, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Do you know the judge would take the money? You realize if there's a fine that you have to pay, as long as it gets paid, they don't care who pays it. Well, the good news this morning is God comes and says, you have no idea the seriousness of your sin, what this has done between you and me. You are hopeless. You can never come up with the payment for this sin. And in the depth of our despair and hopelessness, he says, but I'll pay it. I'll pay it. And he comes in the form of man on earth lives for 30 years, has a brief three-year teaching time, but always knew the main reason he was there, his whole purpose, 
was to take our punishment to die on that cross to descend into hell this is what he did for you and for me now gloriously because he is God on the third day he was able to bust out of that deal hallelujah which gives us all hope all hope for resurrection life in our own lives but it all starts because we believe in this God who loved us so much that he gave of himself to take our punishment for our sins I'd like you all to bow your heads in a word of prayer this morning before we take communion this is what we celebrate when we take communion we reflect on the fact that Jesus' body was broken so that we could be whole his blood shed so we could have forgiveness of sins the question I have for you this morning is are you part of the we when we say we believe in God do you believe in God and not just acknowledge that he is I'm talking about believe in the sense of trusting and clinging to relying on him where you come to him and say God forgive me let me pay my penalty I pray pay my ticket and forgive me of my sins if you've never really done that this morning we're going to pray a prayer together and if you'll pray this prayer believe this from the bottom of your heart if you're willing to turn away from what you know is wrong in your life and put your faith in Christ you can begin your life of faith this morning let's pray this prayer together dear Jesus I believe you are the son of God that you loved me so much you went to the cross and took my punishment I ask you to come into my heart and forgive me of my sins. I now surrender my life to you. Amen.